Before I begin, of course, I'm going to pray again, um, but I just want to commend to you a couple of books that I've used whilst I've been preparing today. Um, they are so good. If you don't ever read your Bible with commentaries, do it. It's so worth investing. So the first one I'm use, I've, I've drawn on today is uh, Bible Speaks Today. Uh, they're horrible looking, but the truth inside is one of the most beautiful things. Uh, and the other one is the Straight to the Heart of series. Really good. Uh, not quite, they're, they're a little bit different in that they're more devotional, um, but I just commend them to you. So do it. Grab yourself a commentary. Uh, right. So let's pray and then I'm going to launch into, into this morning's sermon. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence. Lord, thank you that, that we're not just here in vain, we're not just singing to the wall. Lord, we are worshipping at your throne. Lord, thank you uh, that you are speaking this morning. Uh, so much of what I'm going to draw out this morning that you've already laid on my heart to draw out uh, has come out. And Lord, that is such an encouragement. Lord, may I always preach sermons that have just been preached by the body. <laughs> Lord, and I, I pray that I would preach a better sermon than the one I have prepared. Lord, that you would speak this morning, that hearts would be opened, that lives would be transformed. In your precious name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, this, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is pretty much the same passage that we looked at last week. Rob did an excellent job uh, of looking at how love informs the way we use spiritual gifts, I'm going to be coming at it from a slightly different angle and looking at three main propositions. So, the first one is that love authenticates. That's in verses 1 to 3. The second, love nourishes and grows and sustains us. That's verses 4 to 7. And then finally, love is eternal. Verses 8 to 13. I love the idea of a, a Holy Spirit umbilical cord. <laughs> So, let's turn, if you've got your Bibles, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a lousy, lousy, noisy gong, lousy probably true as well, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I did not love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. 
When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but I grew up. When I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I now know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So let's look at this first proposition, that love authenticates. Now, far from being a beautiful and poetic writing about the nature of human love designed to be read at weddings, uh, the first three verses of this passage begin with a fairly stunning and harsh rebuke from Paul. He's telling the Corinthian church that they are totally missing the point of the gifts of the Spirit. They're useless unless they are grounded in agape love. And that if they fail to recognize that wielding the love of God is far more important than wielding the gifts and power of God, then they achieve nothing, verse 1 tells us. They are nothing, in verse 2. Verse 3, they gain nothing. Paul is giving them a righteous clip round the ear, reminding them that outward expression without heart attitude is no less than a resounding gong. Kelly's laughing because she used that phrase the other day, the the holy clip round the ear. Um, And this idea, the idea of, of being a resounding gong would have been completely understood in the context of, uh, of pagan worship in Corinth. Gongs and symbols were used as part of pagan worship to get the attention of whichever, inverted commas, God uh, they were attempting to worship. It was an obnoxious and tuneless noise that would be heard all around Corinth, and it grabbed the attention of of people around and gained prestige for the person making all the banging and clacking, marking them out as someone important and knowledgeable and a, a spiritual leader to be revered. Paul is drawing a line between the unloving use of the gifts of the Spirit and this act of meaningless and ultimately valueless attention-grabbing and glory-seeking. Ouch. (laughs) He tells them that it doesn't matter if they have prophetic foresight, whether they could understand all the mysteries of the universe and had faith that could move mountains. Without love they would still be nothing. He's not pulling any punches, is he? (laughs) Again, anyone known to have any of these gifts in Corinth, let alone all of them, would have been extremely important and held up as an example of righteousness. But Paul says that without the authentication of God's love in their life, they were not just unimportant, they were nothing. Even if a person engages in extravagant acts of charity, giving away everything they owned, or even laying down their life, they could boast, but would still achieve nothing if they did not do these things from a foundation of agape love. It's like writing someone a check for a million pounds using an empty account. People may tell you how wonderful you are as you hand over a check for a million pounds. You may even be able to fool yourself into thinking you're doing something wonderful. But ultimately, there is no value behind that action. 
Paul is making the point that the church in Corinth and the church today is at risk of settling for self-righteous sufficiency, of settling for moralism and the outward expression of spiritual gifts without engaging with the agape love of God and allowing it to grow, shape, and mature us. I wonder, do we ever make pagan worship out of our service to God? Are we ever satisfied with an outward expression without engaging in love? Are we happy to settle for the applause of those around us or for a sense of moral well-being instead of walking in the truly transforming love of God? Is it even possible to exercise spiritual gifts without being spirit-filled and led by God's love? Well, the Bible certainly seems to suggest that spiritual gifts are not exclusively available to the spirit-filled. Balaam's donkey, for example, (laughs) was granted the supernatural gift of tongues, but there was no indication that he had this active uh, living faith or that he knew Jesus as Lord and demonstrated agape love in his character, for that matter. (laughs) In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus turns to the people who have done miraculous things in his name and yet claims to have never known them. The spiritual gifts can come upon whomever the Lord chooses to use in a given situation. But what this passage is reminding us is that although the grace gifts are beautiful and vital for the building up of the church, it is in fact spiritual fruit that are the authenticating mark of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is His love that is the ground of our faith. The bank that gives that million pound check its value. God's agape love is what gives our gifts and our outward action their value. To God, to us, and to the church. God's love authenticates his people and their works. So let's look at this second proposition here, which is love nourishes. Got the power of love, crazy in love. All you need is love. I will always love you. By the way, what's Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? Hand eye, hand eye. There we go. Uh, how deep is your love? Stop in the name of love. I want to know what love is. All of these songs, like we are obsessed as, as a race of human beings. Humankind is completely obsessed with love, and we seem to have a strange understanding of what it actually is, though. Which, given that Scripture tells us that love is the value base of our Christian life, and expressing the spiritual gift, it's, it's pretty important that we have a proper definition, isn't it? See, we read that, that Scripture before, but I do sometimes wonder what this passage might look like if it was written based on today's cultural perspective of love. So, with that in mind, please turn in your imaginary books to chapter 13 of the made-up book of Corinthians. Love is easy. Love is nice. It doesn't challenge or give me advice. Love always agrees. It never tells me I'm wrong. It never holds me responsible. Love just goes along. 
It's always enjoyable. Love's never a chore, and if I don't get what I want from it, I don't need to give it anymore. Love is comfy. It's not costly, it's free. It makes no demands, and it's all about me. Isn't that a depressingly recognizable description of love in our culture? Thank you, James. You know, it's, it's in our TV shows, it's in our music, it's, it's visible in our broken relationships. But thankfully, Paul is presenting us here with a far better picture. Or to use his words, he's presenting a most excellent way. So let's put, look at Paul's description. Love is patient. Some, some Bibles uh, use the phrase long-suffering. Long-suffering is patient endurance under provocation. Love is kind. Kindness is active goodness, pursuing the interests of others first. Love is not jealous. It is pleased when others are honored or exalted. Love is not boastful or proud or puffed up. It remains humble, knowing that whatever it has is a gift from God. And that there is nothing apart from God which man can be proud of. This includes gifts of the Spirit, which are special only because of who has given them to us, not because of us receiving them. Love is not rude. Agape love causes us to act with courtesy and consideration to those around us. It does not demand its own way. It seeks to put others first and delights in working toward the blessing of others. It's not irritable. It is willing to endure slights and insults and let go of things that would otherwise grate. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a list of times I was hurt or people who'll get it one day. It doesn't hold grudges or attribute malice, but assumes the best and releases hurt to God. Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love is never happy or takes pleasure in what is unrighteous. Even if an unrighteous act seems fun, entertaining, pleasurable, just distracting, or in some way a benefit. Love rejoices every time the truth comes out, even when that comes at a personal cost. Love never gives up. It bears all things. It patiently endures all things. It applies God's grace to cover others' faults. Love does not needlessly publicize the failures of others, but it does remain firm in giving godly discipline. Love never loses faith. It always seeks to view people's actions and events in the most favorable and gracious of lights. It's always hopeful. It earnestly desires and trusts in God to work all things for good for those who love him in all situations. Love endures all things, up to and including persecution and ill-treatment, laying aside the self for the sake of displaying God's perfect love. 
Wow. Some of these descriptions are positive, some of them uh, and, and to be embraced, and some of them are put, put as negatives, you know, as things that we are to not do. Love does not do these things. Because they, these areas, they, they represent something of the world and not of God. This fallen world has tainted and twisted and distorted our idea, our understanding of love, and, and some of these things no longer represent God's perfect image of love. These negative descriptions are here to remind us that some things are alien to God's kingdom, and they should be alien to God's kingdom, and are to be actively and decisively renounced. Paul paints such a lofty picture, doesn't he? And far from being based simply on warm, fuzzy emotions and self-satisfaction, real love, agape love, can be costly. It is self-sacrificing. But there is nothing inactive about it. There is nothing passive about agape love. God's love is a doing word. This, this description Paul gives us is full of verbs. Actions without love are dead. They are useless. They are pointless. Even actions involving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And while it's possible to take action without love, it's impossible to love without taking action. In the same way that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Agape love demands something of us. Does this description sound like you? Well, why not try? Let's, let's try it on, shall we? <clears throat> um, Dave is patient. Dave is kind. Dave never fails. Um, I'm bumping up against some stuff straight away here. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak for you, but for me, Dave sometimes does lose faith. Dave sometimes, fa well, Dave definitely does fail. Um, I don't think this is fitting me, but let's try this again. Okay, let's try this again. So let's change the word love for Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus never fails. Oh, yeah. That fits. That is right, James. Hmm. Jesus is the full embodiment of agape love. See, the context of chapter 2 is twofold. Firstly, it's to do with spiritual gifts. That's why it's sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which are all about spiritual gifts. But secondly, and equally, it's about Jesus' body. In chapter 12, Paul teaches us that Christ has two bodies. Emma spoke about this <clears throat> a few weeks back. He has his physical body, which was crucified uh, and raised, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting his return on Judgment Day. And his other body, the church. All of you, is how Paul puts it. Yes, you too, James. But why, why does God want us to function as one body? Why, why doesn't he just use us individually and have millions of bodies? So there's, there's you know, a few bodies in every town, city, village, everything. You know, why, why does he want us to be one body? 
Well, the answer is that Jesus didn't just minister in his power, he also ministered in his radical love. See, when Jesus challenged the woman at the well about her sinful sexual history, he did so with such tenderness and love that she ran away full of joy to tell everyone who would listen about the stranger who knew all about her. When he healed the sick and the demonized, the gospel writers tell us that that healing overflowed from his heart of compassion. Even the cynics watching him raise Lazarus from the dead exclaimed, see how much he loved him, as Jesus shed tears for his friend. The reason that Jesus makes us the church, his other body, and not his many bodies, is that he wants us to cooperate. He wants our cooperation with each other and with him to embody his love as well as his power. Scripture tells us over and over that we are called to live out this higher calling of love. There are some 40 plus examples in Scripture where we are told to love one another, honor one another, live at harmony with, be devoted to, build up, accept, correct, submit, bear with, comfort, forgive, and stir one another up to love and good works. And if this seems beautiful to you, it's because it is. And if this seems impossibly difficult to you, it's because it is. (laughs) This is not a human love. This is a God-given love, born of the Holy Spirit. To love this way without being filled with the Holy Spirit and looking to the example of Jesus Christ cannot be done. You will either fall short or you will be crushed by the weight of expectation you've placed on yourself. This love is not prophecy, it's not turning water into wine or splitting seas, but make no mistake, this kind of love is no less supernatural. This chapter is in the context of being spirit-filled. We need his anointing as much to love with the love we see here as we do to minister with the gifts described in chapter 12 and 14. It's only as we draw on him that we can hope to love this way. And as we do, we find God will shape us in the image of his son, Jesus. He is chiseling away with his love. Only love for God, released by his love for us, can sustain us and make us the people, make us the church and the witness to the world that he wants us to become. To love in this supernatural way is not always easy. It's often an uncomfortable choice to express our love for others in ways that doesn't necessarily tie up with our emotional responses. (laughs) But by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we can love those around us with the overwhelming, never stopping, never giving up, unreasonable, supernatural, always and forever love of God. Isn't that phenomenal? We can love the unlovable. We can let go of our right to be offended. We can encourage the downtrodden, joyfully sacrifice our own comfort for the good of another. And not only can we do it in his power, we rejoice in the fact that we get to. This isn't just a responsibility. This is a joyful gift. What a privilege. Do you realize how spectacular it is to be able to love those the world has rejected? 
to be given the supernatural strength to love in spite of personal hurt or emotional state. It is a wonderful and beautiful miracle that we get to participate in God's supernatural agape love. It's like arriving at a racetrack on a pushbike and being handed the keys to a Formula One car. This isn't some kind of extra obligation. It's arguably the greatest gift of our salvation, the supernatural, mind-bending, face-melting, joyful outworking of knowing Jesus and the thrill of knowing that one day we will be transformed into his likeness. Amen. It is. And as his body here on earth, not only does that mean we get to experience his love, but he has armed us with it. He has entrusted us with the keys to that F1 car, and we get to be the ambassadors of his love to this world. Beloved, the way we treat each other is more significant than we can ever hope to imagine. Our responses to each other in all situations have the potential to be a shining light in this dark world. Every act of agape love is another beacon of faith, hope, and love. It edifies the church. It sanctifies the believer. It terrifies the enemy. And it glorifies God. I'm going to say that again because I like that. I stole it from, from one of the commentaries I'm not taking credit, but it's powerful. Every act of agape love is another beacon of faith, hope, and love. It edifies the church. It sanctifies the believer. It terrifies the enemy. And it glorifies God. Loving this way is not just a blessing. It is spiritual warfare. And if you think I'm overstating it there, just take a moment to think about the outcome of times when you've been under attack from the enemy. Did it make you more or less loving? Agape is a war cry for the God-fearing heart. It declares life to the body, Christ to the world, and strikes fear into the heart of the enemy who is doing his best to convince the world that God is dead. He is not dead. He is very much alive. And when we engage with the transforming love of God in our life, it is the most wonderful, life-giving gift. Love is the greatest. Or as the final verse of of chapter 12 puts it, it is the most excellent way. And it gets better, because this brings us to our third proposition, that love endures forever. Love is eternal. So unlike the spiritual gifts, unlike these bodies that we walk around in, unlike money or careers, unlike anything or everything this fallen world has to offer, and to quote the song, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out. The well of God's love from which we drink and draw life-giving water for those around us will never run dry. It is perfect in its form and eternal in its nature. Verses 8 to 13 remind us that the context of this chapter is ultimately that Jesus is coming back. That one day his imperfect 
so, sorry, one day this imperfect world will pass away. Prophecy and tongues and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Hallelujah. If there is any doubt left in your mind about how agape stands apart from all other kinds of love, then it's surely this. God's love never fails. It never ends. It never folds, even under the most sustained and intense pressure. It will continue through death into eternity. There is no other love that compares, no human love so great that it will last forever. Even the most impressive of spiritual gifts, they will just disappear. They will become irrelevant or they will be completely swallowed up in the perfection of eternity. I say it again, the spiritual gifts are wonderful, powerful, essential. They are vital to the life and ministry of the church. Don't misunderstand me. But there will come a day when death is swallowed up in life. When the earth is renewed and these things that point us towards eternity will be completely fulfilled in the return of Christ. Paul uses a couple of examples to illustrate this. The first picture he uses is of the transition between childhood and adulthood. He's not saying that childhood is bad. In fact, it's completely necessary. Uh, Not a single adult in human history, Jesus included, got to skip childhood. In the same way that childhood is vital for reaching maturity as an adult, so is the exercise of gifts. But just as adulthood removes the need for childish things, when we see him face to face, there will be no more need for these things. The spiritual gifts are are vehicles of revelation that show us pieces of his glory to encourage and to grow us in our walk. But the true heartbeat of our Christian life and relationship with God is that he loves us. That he knows us. Not the other way around. That's just not going to be possible this side of heaven. We will not fully know him. We will not be able to love him in the fullness of his design this side of eternity. But one day, Paul tells us, we will know him fully. The second example Paul gives us is of looking into a mirror. Now, the Corinthians would have been used to imperfect mirrors. They couldn't just nip down to the range on Sealand Road and pick up like a flawless mirror for a tenner like we can. The mirrors they had were tarnished. They were polished metal, and they would often present distorted and darkened reflections. And much like a funhouse mirror, what we see in this broken and distorted mirror of a fallen world does not and cannot do justice to the beauty of the reality of God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, one day we will know him fully. We will see him face to face. We will glimpse what we glimpse in part through the distorted mirror of fallen creation will become crystal clear, ultra HD, fully complete, and we will know and enjoy his perfect love as time stretches out into eternity. But for now, I urge you to revel in the foretaste. To love outrageously. 
Love outside the limits of your comfort zone. Love beyond your human capacity. Embody Christ in all, in all his mystery and wonder by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we see in part, but then we will know fully and be fully known. We need to learn to live in the now with a sense of what is to come. By his love, we live in the now, and by faith, we have hope for then. Christians are often accused of being backwards, of needing to catch up to the present age. We're told that we're living in the past. Brothers and sisters, switch that round. We are a people who are living in the future, inhabiting eternity through faith and hope in the king and his coming kingdom. Live now, love now, because Jesus is coming again. All that is in part will pass away, but three things will remain forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of love. Lord, we thank you that we get to love people in this way. Even though it is beyond our, our human capacity, Lord, you empower us through the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill us afresh today with the agape love of Christ. Lord, though, as we move around so full of you and we bump into people, Lord, what comes spilling out? is your love, your grace. Lord, that we would present Christ to this world as his body. Be glorified, Lord. Amen.